Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. Um, we have been uh, doing this series, The Story. Uh, this will be our 40th week of the story. That's, that's a long time. Um, and today we are starting the book of Revelation. And we're going to spend three weeks on the book of Revelation. Uh, it is not an in-depth study of Revelation. All right, so I don't want to hear all about why didn't we talk about this or why didn't we talk about that. But it's interesting. If you were to ask somebody what is the story of Revelation about, you could get all kinds of different answers because the book of Revelation is pretty complex. But I want, I want you to know something. This morning, in this time, you are going to learn exactly what the book of Revelation is about. Right now. And you're going to find it in Psalm 103. So open up your Bibles if you have them, because we're going to read the whole thing. Psalm 103 tells you the story of the book of Revelation. Bryce, that's crazy talk. No, 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 friends. It's true. Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower in the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Amen. This psalm communicates so many different things to us. It is full of praise, but it is also a wonderful Step away, yet description of the book of Revelation. Did you see Revelation in there for those of you who have studied it before? Here it is. God redeems our lives from the pit and crowns us 
with love and compassion. He does not hold his anger against us forever, but he forgives and does not treat us as our sin deserves. This mortal life is short and will end like a flower in the field that's blown away in the place where it is, doesn't even remember it. But God's love is from everlasting to everlasting. It existed before anything else did, and it will continue to exist when everything else ceases. He loves all of those who love Him and obey His commands. His throne is established in heaven, and all of heaven and earth praises Him. Everything that lives will praise him. That is the story of the book of Revelation. You're welcome. But listen, what is really neat about the story is that we have seen the same things happen over and over again. The story has been the same. From the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. And what church has stayed the same? God is the only God. He loves His people. He does not hold our sins against us. He is on the throne, whether people see Him there or not. And one day, everyone will recognize Him. That's a good story. I want to thank, uh, he's not in the room right now, I guess, but I want to thank Jim for uh, filling in for me last week. Really appreciated it. I got to go spend some time with my uh, parents who, uh, my mom is is still uh, not weight-bearing on her leg and dealing with some different things, so it was good that I was able to go and spend some time with them. We are kind of spread out like all over this room today. So I'd like to invite you, if you want, to move closer uh, actually come down a little. If you don't, if you don't want to, then just sit there with your arms crossed and like mean mug me this whole time. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, <clears throat> so I want to tell you about um, one of the most significant moments of my life. And it's not one that I've ever talked to any group of people about before. Um, and this very, very significant moment of my life happened back in 2007 when the seventh book of the Harry Potter series came out. Well, I don't know what's funny, but this is me sharing my life with you, okay? So if you can try not to laugh at my life. First, there is something that you need to know about me. It is not something that I keep hidden or that I am ashamed of. I am a 42-year-old man who loves the world of Harry Potter. It's true. I love the books. I've read them countless times. I've listened to them countless times. The movies are okay, uh, but for me, the books are where they're at. And I started reading the books after the fourth book had come out. And I bought a set at Costco that had books one through four and uh, started reading them. And I just like plowed through those books. Now, I, I've always loved to read. Um, 
but this was the first, you know, and I mean, even as a kid, you know, I read the Chronicles of Narnia and uh, the Lord of the Rings, those kinds of things. But for some reason, as an adult, because yes, I was an adult when I started this, this series caught my imagination in a way that nothing else ever really had. And so I plowed through the first four books, and then I eagerly awaited book five. And when that came out, I bought like the special edition of book five, and I plowed through that book. And then I waited for book six, and then uh, I plowed through that book. And I'm not, I'm not uh, over-exaggerating by any stretch of the imagination when I say that the entire world was waiting for book seven. I am dead serious. The entire world was waiting for book seven. So many people had read these books, and so there's usually like what? I think in those series, there was usually about two years or so uh, in between the publication of one book and the publication of the next book. Do you know what I spent those two years doing? Being a productive member of society? No. I spent those two years reading uh, fan theories as to what was going to happen in the last book. And I read all these things, and I'm like digesting them, and I'm reading about them. And, and, and then finally, finally in 2007, book seven was going to be released in the summer, in July. Um, now, you laughed at me a little bit when I said the whole world was waiting for it. But let me, let, let me tell you, when the book went on sale, in its first 24 hours on sale, it sold 8.3 million copies in the United States. 8.3 million copies in the United States. Um, and that series now has sold more than 500 million copies in over 80 languages. So it's a big deal, and I'm cool. The book came out when I was at summer camp in the summer of 2007, and one of the, we all knew it was coming out, we were all excited about it. One of the youth ministers who didn't have a lot to do at the high school camp but was still there, he went and waited in line in Santa Cruz and got the book and brought it back and laid on his bunk and read it in front of me for that week because I was busy. But I had promised that, you know, I wasn't going to start anything until I got home. So I got home on Saturday from camp. I spent time with Nisha and Zeke. We hung out. I had to work the next day, which was just a drag. So I got up and went to church on Sunday morning and we did our thing here. And then I went home and I finally took the book and opened it up, lay down on the couch. I turned the cover, and a light shone from the heavens. <laughs> Angels sang. I stayed on that couch for the next 12 hours, slept for a little while, got up, and then was there the next however long it took for me to finish. I mean, I'm telling you, Nisha had to sit next to me, put food in my mouth, and move my jaw so that I could take some sort of nourishment during that time. And I finished it by, by noon on Monday. I, I could not put the book down. I couldn't stop reading. And it, it was an amazing final story. It was full of twists and turns. It made me laugh. It made me cry. It was worth waiting for. And every question that I had and everything I wanted to know, almost all of them were answered in this last book. And I got to the end, I read the last words, 
And it was such a perfect and great ending to a story that I loved so much. It just, I couldn't imagine it. And there was almost universal praise for everything that happened with the exception of a few deaths. It was great. All that build-up, all that hype. And I wonder now, J.K. Rowling, the pressure that she must have felt to write the perfect ending to something that people themselves had been writing about for two years and to finish the story that she had been telling. But here was what was so crazy to me. She did an amazing job of carrying imagery and themes and storylines throughout all seven books. There were questions that were answered about book one that I didn't even know to ask, which is pretty interesting. And we didn't even think about those things when we started the series. And then, of course, I'm done, and there is no more new Harry Potter left in the world. It's it's an empty feeling, friends. It's an empty feeling when you get to that place. But I want you to think about something for a moment. What makes a good ending to an epic storyline? To something that you've been following reading something that you've been engrossed in, not, not like one story or two stories, but over seven, eight books, over all these different things, what makes a good ending to those things? Well, there's probably some pretty common things, right, that we could say. We, we generally, by the time the last book comes, we want to see a resolution to the major issues, whatever those major issues have been. Um, we want all of the big questions to be answered, And probably most of the time, the thing that we want the most from the final book, from the last word, is a happy ending. We uh, want the good guy to win, we want the bad guy to lose, and we also, though, want there to be some sort of um, like justice or final act, you know, where uh, the loose ends are tied up, where the people that have annoyed you the whole time you know, are gone and where the people that you like move on and everything is good and great. Those are probably just some of the general things that we want from the end of an epic story. Now, we have been following the most epic story over the last 40 weeks from the beginning of the Bible to where we are now, which is the last chapter, if you will. Now, for those of us who are on the inside, we know that the last chapter is not really the end of the story, right? It's not the end of the story. This is a story that continues to ring on and on and on into the future, into eternity. But it does describe how things are all going to come to that resolution tying up place where all things are completed, It describes the end. So, how should this story end? What should be the last word of this story? Well, God wins and Satan loses, right? I mean, to put it in its most basic terms, because as we've said, God wants to love his people. Satan wants to turn his people, God's people, away from him. This should be what happens, is that God wins and Satan loses. And of course, the irony of wanting to see that at the end is what? Has God ever lost? No. God has not lost and Satan has never won. 
But there is a major complication to reading this end part of the story. In order for to see the ending that we want, where God is ultimately victorious and Satan is ultimately overthrown, there is one huge problem. What is it? It's us. We're the huge problem. Humanity in the middle. We've been in the middle of all of this. And so the question that we have, even though we know God's going to win and Satan's going to lose, is what happens to us? Now, that is a loaded question. And let me just point something out. There are people who have chosen not to believe in God because of the answer to that question. What happens to us? So, it's not an easy one to answer, but as we come to the book of Revelation, that is exactly the situation we are in. We know that God wins, we know that Satan loses, and we know that humanity is in the middle. And so, what is going to happen to humanity? Well, God does win and Satan does lose, and there is justice. There is a tying up of all the loose ends. And we're going to see that throughout. The last book of the Bible is full of great purpose and meaning. There are so many things we can get caught up in in the book of Revelation. We could probably spend the next five years trying to break down what every little thing means within the book of Revelation. But we're not doing that, thank goodness, as much as it would probably be enjoyable for the first three years. That's very kind. Three years is very kind. Uh, for the first while, okay, we are coming at it from the higher view as we've been doing all along. We're coming at it from the sense of the narrative and the story that has been told. And Revelation is the perfect ending to the narrative and the story that we have been following. But here's the question we need to ask this morning as we just now get started, okay? What is important to God in the last chapter? If this is the last book of this story, what does God want us to hear? What does he want everyone to know? And that's the question we have to keep at the front of our minds as we begin to look at some of the things within this book. Okay? Now, let's back up. We're going to go way, 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 way high view on this right now, okay? So, number one, what is the book of Revelation? This is going to blow your mind. Are you ready? Buckle up. It's a revelation. It is. We'll talk about that in a second. But if you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 is a pretty good place to start. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 8. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, 
to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So first off, what is this thing? Because these words that we just read are actually really important and they set the table for what is to come. So what is this thing? Well, as I said, it's a vision. It's a revelation, a prophecy, something that was given to John by God. And it's meant to tell a story of what is to come. Okay? It is telling a story of what is to come and what things will be like at the end of the of this life on earth as we know it. Now, it was given to John by whom? Jesus, and it was given to Jesus by whom? God which means that this whole thing has come straight from the top. Okay? John, even though he's in a bad situation, he's not, he's not a, a crazy person who is coming up with all this stuff on his own. But it's coming straight from the top, which means that tells us what about what we are going to read. That it's true and that it matters to God. This is the story that he wants to tell. And he is passing it straight down. And this is one of the most important parts of the book of Revelation, that this message is coming directly from God through Jesus to John. Okay? From God through Jesus to John. So whatever you read and imagine and think about as you go through this, this is coming directly from the source. Now, who is the message for? It is to go out to the seven churches of Asia. More on them in a minute. But I want you to keep that thought in the back of your head. This message is to go out to the seven churches of Asia. Now, based on what we've seen so far, what is the revelation going to be about? Well, we don't have to guess, right? That's one of the funny things. As, as much as the images and the ideas and things are really big within the book of Revelation, we do not have to guess what the book of Revelation is about. Because the story it tells is actually a very simple story. And we are given the entire story within even this first part. Number one, God is. God is. Number two, Jesus is above all. He is 
part of God and he is essential to the whole thing that is going on. Number three, he has loved us and freed us from our sin and established his kingdom. He has established his kingdom. Now this is an important idea and it's mentioned several times throughout the book of Revelation. Why is the idea, think back now, okay, you're going to have to use your, you know, the little gray stuff between those ears. Why is it important that the point is made that God has established his kingdom? What is Israel waiting for? The establishment of the kingdom. That when the Messiah comes back, Israel will be raised up. They will sit over all their enemies. Jerusalem will be the capital city of the world and God's kingdom will be established. But there's a point, and we've already talked about it, how things have shifted, right? When Jesus is here, he talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And we are living in that kingdom of heaven, that kingdom of God. And the kingdom has been established. It is, it exists. It is a place. And it's not something that we are waiting for. Next one. He is coming again and all will see him. God is the beginning and the end. He has always been, he always will be, and there is nothing above him. And lastly, he will receive all glory forever. This is the story that we are about to launch into. These things. Is there more? Yes, there's a lot more. There are a lot of details, a lot of things. But this is the story. This is what we see in the book of Revelation. God is. Jesus is above all. He has loved us and freed us from our sin and established his kingdom. He is coming again and all will see him. God is the beginning and the end. He has always been. He always will be. There is nothing above him. And he will receive all glory forever. Now, when we read the book of Revelation, as simple as that story may seem, what happens to us when we read the book of Revelation? Confusion. Sure. Why? Because <laughs> things get weird real quick. If you want to know the truth. Things get weird really quick. That the images that we see within the book of Revelation, they are so vivid and they are so strange. And we look at these things and we say, these things mean something. And then we want to know what? What they mean. And we can break it down to the nth degree. We get caught up in all of this stuff. It was, you know, I don't remember when it was, but it was like a year ago sometime and, and we were having something done and there was a technician here at the church and I, I walked in and introduced myself and spoke to him and, oh, you're the pastor and guess what he wanted to talk about? What does this mean from the book of Revelation? And do you think this image is this person and this situation? And do you think that we're already living in this time? And I was like, bro, I was actually just walking back to the bathroom, man. You know, it's like... We, we're, we get caught up in it because it is so interesting and fascinating. And in our quest to understand everything and put it in its rightful place, I think that perhaps we miss something about the images themselves. So, 
here's what I want you to consider as we approach this. God, through Jesus, is showing John things. And John is then trying to describe them to us. But here is the problem. How can God show John the true nature of things that are beyond John's ability to comprehend? And how can John describe what is ultimately indescribable? It's an issue. It's an issue. There's a theological statement, and I think I've shared it with you before, but it says this. God is that which nothing greater can be conceived. And here's basically what that means. I'd like for you just for a second to think in your mind, what is your favorite dessert or meal or whatever it is? Just put it in your head. This is my favorite, favorite thing. Okay? Now imagine that someone makes it for you exactly how you like it. The smell is right. The texture is right. The taste is right. Everything about this thing that was made for you is perfect. It is exactly how you like it and how you want it. You got that in your head? Yeah? Okay. If God were that thing, he would be better. This is the basic principle. That God is greater than that which can be conceived. Whatever you, whatever you can stretch your imagination to the farthest, God is more than that. God loves me. And so I imagine what that looks like and what that feels like and how I understand that. And maybe I draw like a correlation to the way I love my children or to the way my parents love me or, you know, the way I love Harry Potter. And I, so I think about it in those terms, right? But no matter what image or view or idea I take of what it means for God to love me, my brain cannot take it far enough. It's not possible for my brain to do that. I know this is a big idea. I know in some ways it's sort of a weird idea. But it matters when we look at the images of the book of Revelation. Because again, God is showing, trying to show John things that John can't understand. And he's trying to describe to us the indescribable. So what we get is this how things are? Is this literal? Maybe. But when we're looking at these things, we have to understand that all of these things are telling a story and they are describing to us things that we cannot understand because they are so wonderful and strange and great and beyond our brains. Now, there's meaning and things that we can dig out of them, but remember, at their core, they represent something that is beyond us. Therefore, trying to wrap our minds around them entirely, we're going to miss something. And we're going to end up at that place where it's just like, this is confusing. It's going to be confusing, (laughs) because by its very nature, it's beyond us. So, let's look at one such image. And we don't have to go far, since we ended in verse 8. Let's just pick it up in verse 9. 
John, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Okay, this just reinforces everything I told you for this reason. What is the word that is repeated the most? Like, which means what? He's trying to say, I don't know what else to call this, but it was like this. I don't know how to capture what it is that I saw, but it was like this, which is why you end up with these weird things, right? He's searching for some way to describe this to us. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. So what do we have in our heads right now? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a weird image, right? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampshades is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so number one, who is this person that John is seeing? It's Jesus. Very different looking Jesus than the one we have in our heads. This homeless, dirty, yet somehow glowing person, right? It's a very different image of Jesus. doesn't really sound like the Jesus we know. And the reason why he doesn't sound like the Jesus we know is the Jesus we know was what? He was human. And this Jesus is the more Jesus. The other Jesus. The one who is beyond us and what we can think and understand. So it is a more, and this is a weird thing, it is a more indescribable view of him. Uh, when Nisha and I were driving across country to come here and work for the first time, we were driving from Virginia all the way back, and we decided to stop by the Grand Canyon. And um, Nisha had never been to the Grand Canyon before. So we were on the, on the southern edge, you know, and we're coming up, and we turn off there, and we start heading north to the Grand Canyon. And as we come up, there's these canyons that are beside us. 
Anisha looks out her window and she said, well, is that the Grand Canyon? And I laughed. And then I apologized because I was in trouble at that point. (laughs) And I said, no, no, that is not the Grand Canyon. That is a canyon. And she's like, well, where's the Grand Canyon? And I said, you'll know it when you see it. And so we got there, we parked, and we walked over to the edge of the Grand Canyon, and she said, oh, right? Because what could I tell her about it? It's big. It's really big. But I can't, I can't really put into words what it looks like because there's a part of it that is beyond what I can say, you know? I can try to come up with all the right adjectives and all the right things, but there's just a part of it that you don't understand or you don't get until what? You're there and you see it. This is what John is seeing. That indescribable part. That extra piece. So what do we notice about him? Uh, He's got white hair. What does the white hair mean? Um, Signifies purity and glory. He has eyes as flame. What does that mean? Um, all searching and penetrating like fire, uh, also implying consuming indignation against sin. Uh, there are stars in his hand. Where are the stars? Well, he's already told us these are the angels, but he's holding them like this, which shows that he's just holding them like they're a crown of glory and all these things. And, and then the sword is coming out of his mouth, which I don't know how he's talking with the sword coming out of his mouth. It's like, it it seems strange, but that symbolizes uh, the power of the word which cuts through all things. Do you see what we could do with this? Because there is symbology throughout. But what should we get from this image? Jesus himself tells us he is powerful and glorified. He once was dead, but now he's alive. He has the keys to death and to Hades. And he has something to say to the seven churches, which are represented by these seven lampstands that are around. Now, the seven lampstands are actually a vision that I really like. I like this image. Because what would the lampstands be holding? Lamps. And what should lamps do? Be giving light, right? But we find out, as he begins to speak to the churches, that perhaps the light, the lamps, are not really doing what they're supposed to do. Maybe they're not giving as much light. Or maybe they're not giving light at all. So these messages are going to go out. And Jesus, this Jesus, sees things as they are now. So he is looking in John's real time, at these churches, and he sees things as they are, and he also sees things as they could be. So what he has to say to them is really important. We're just going to look at three this morning as we finish. These messages are going out to the churches, and that's, and that's something I told you to remember earlier, and we're going to talk about that in a second. So first, Revelation chapter 2, turn over there, and we'll be starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. So this is the church in Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, 
that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, so he has something really important to say to the church in Ephesus. And what is it? Well, it's this. You guys have done some really great things. You've been smart about how you've conducted yourself. You've, you've ferreted out the false teachers. You've done these things really well. And that's really, that's good. I'm glad that you've done that. But there is a problem. What is the problem? You have forgotten who you were when? When you started. What was the community based on when they started? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, resurrection, love of God, forgiveness for those around. This is what they were about when they first started. But somehow, over the years, they have become about other things. And Jesus tells them, you need to go back to where you were when you were about the gospel. When you were about living out the love of God in this place. Turn yourselves around, stop being so fancy pants, and get back to the basics. Because it's the basics that make you mine. Okay? You with me? Revelation chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so what does he have to say to the church in Sardis? Their problem is slightly different, although similar. They look really good on the outside. In fact, other people are telling them how good they look. Girl, you look good. Other people are telling them how they look. But on the inside, what are they? They're dead. They look like Christians, but on the inside, they're not. Remember, what does Jesus do? He sets us free from sin and death, which means that if they are dead on the inside, they are not his. Okay? Parts of them are even about to die off 
So they need to wake up to repent and to hold on what they first heard, which was what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. He is coming back, and so they better get their act together before he gets there. Because they don't know when he's coming back, so they need to change when? Now. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Last one here. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and while clothes to wear and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And at this moment, words from Jesus should be coming back to your mind. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what does he have to say to this group of people? In some ways, they're the worst because they're not anything. They're not anything. They're neither hot nor cold. They're just somewhere in the middle of all this. And furthermore, they do not see themselves clearly at all. They see themselves as, well, I don't need a thing. I'm great. And Jesus says, slow your roll. Actually, things are pretty messed up for you. And you don't have what you need. But here's the amazing thing, and what I love about this one in particular. They don't have what they need. They're they're neither hot nor cold. They're not being the community of Jesus. But what does Jesus say? But I'm where? Where is he? He's at the door. And all they have to do is what? Open the door, and what will he do? He will come in and eat with them, and then what will they be? A community of Jesus. This church that is nothing, what does Jesus invite them to do? It's the same thing he's been telling everyone else. Come back to me, let me in, and then you will be a community that is mine. In fact, to anyone, I will take you to the throne and you will sit on the throne with me, just like I sat on the throne with my father. Think about that for a second. Think about that idea. You are neither here nor there, but if you open the door and let me in, I will seat you on the throne. What do we take from all of this in our first little foray into Revelation here? There is a story being told. 
And that story is that God is, his kingdom has been established, he forgives and he loves, he stands at the door and knocks. But he is coming back. And when he comes back, something really important is going to happen. What is wrong will be recognized as wrong, and what is right will be recognized as right. And if you are with him, then you are on the right. But if you are not, then it spells trouble for you. Now, this is a message that has been given to non-Christians forever. Are you with Jesus? Are you not with Jesus? If you're not with Jesus, you're going to (laughs) die and go to hell while all of those who are Christians are going to go to heaven. But who is this... Who are these letters written to? They're they're written to Christians, not to non-Christians, which tells us something pretty important, I think. The longer these communities sat with their faith, what happened to it? It changed, it altered, and it became something else. And they forgot why it was they existed in the first place that they were supposed to be a community of the gospel. Why is it so important that the churches hear these messages? Well, let's look at it this way. What was Paul's mission? To spread the gospel to where? The world. To make disciples, and then those disciples would make disciples. But here's the issue. He's done that. He's gone out, and he's made disciples, and these churches are making disciples, but there's a problem. When these churches stop being like Jesus, who doesn't hear about Jesus? Everyone else. If this community can't be like Jesus, then how are other people going to discover who Jesus is and how he loves them and what he has done for them? And until this is... This is, this is what matters so much about this message until they become like Jesus again and they become about the gospel. The gospel that says that Jesus died and was raised for us that we might have life because of the love of God and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Until they become about that again, the rest of the world is going to continue to stay lost. So he doesn't threaten them. He threatens us. He threatens us. Because if we can't be like Jesus, then the gospel will die. The gospel will die. And Jesus is coming back. And guess who he's going to look at the most harshly? Those who pretended to be his but were dead inside. Those who started out strong but then forgot who they were. Those who never really made a choice one way or the other. But there's good news even there, you see. Because he's knocking on the door. And all you have to do is open it and let him in and become about the gospel again. And then when he comes, he will recognize you as his. This is not a new story. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus told this story. 
the sheep and the goats. They are not Christians and non-Christians. They are all Christians. And some of them were about Jesus and others were not. And those who were about Jesus were invited in. And those who were not, even though they thought they were, were sent away. The warning comes to us, you see. Because I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was hungry and you fed me. Lord, we didn't do that for you. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. You became the gospel in the world. And you lived the gospel in the world. This is how Revelation starts. So let's not get confused. Let's not get confused about what this is about. God wants to save the world. And God is counting on us to help him save the world. And so he wants us to know the end is coming. And here's what the end is going to look like. So play your part before I get there. So that more people will come to know the love that I have for them. Amen. Play your part as those who have come to know the love of Jesus so that other people will know that love too. Play your part as someone who has been forgiven of all the awful things that you've done so that others may come to know the forgiveness that they get for all the awful things they've done. Live a powerful life with the Holy Spirit so that others will see the power of God and the love of God in you and they will want that same thing in their hearts. Live the gospel and change the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you stand at the door and knock. The way that even when we muck things up, you invite us to just let you back in. Because God, you know that your love in Jesus changes everything. And that if we open the door and let you in, you will change our hearts, you will change our lives, and you will give us all we need to be people of Jesus in this place. We don't want to be called Christians, we want to be Christians. We don't want to be called disciples, we want to be disciples. And we want to stay to our first love and call people to that. Not to be like us, but to know and accept the love of God in Jesus. May you use us to change the world. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any needs for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in an amazing way, we invite you to be a part of the story. If you have any needs, come forward as we stand and sing this song together.